At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade on Food 52, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we get to hear from the geniuses themselves. My guest this week is molecular biologist turned food writer Nick Sharma. His latest cookbook, The Flavor Equation, is full of dizzyingly good flavor combinations and the science of exactly what makes them so delicious. We talk about the baked sweet potatoes with maple creme fraiche from his book, and why the technique makes them both creamier and more flavorful than any sweet potatoes I've made before. Plus, more food science fun facts and the joy and tears of creating this very one-of-a-kind cookbook. Hi, Nick. Hi, Kristen. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good enough. <laughs> I do want to jump in with this genius recipe, your baked sweet potatoes with maple creme fraiche. Can you just tell our listeners what this recipe is and what problem you hope for it to solve? Uh, the roasted sweet potatoes in my book, that recipe basically, um, you take sweet potatoes, you roast them in the oven and you roast them half and half. Is, that's what I call it, half and half, where basically first you steam it covered. So you take advantage of um, the moisture inside the water that's inside the cells of the sweet potato. And as it heats up, that helps soften the fibers because, I mean, you know this, when you roast sweet potatoes to make a pie, you want a really smooth texture. And if you don't have that, then you've got that fibrous thing, which is unpleasant to eat in, in pies. So I had to somehow figure out how to do that. And it turns out if you wrap them up, the moisture inside the vegetable basically takes care of that by destroying those um, fibers. And those fibers are basically uh, carbohydrates. Most of them are insoluble. Uh, carbohydrates and steam helps destroy that structure so you've got then this creamy texture that comes about and then for the other half of the cooking time you remove it and you cook it uncovered in the oven and so what that does is and this was something really fascinating that I found out I used to notice that when I roasted sweet potatoes they reminded me of vanilla and I couldn't understand why and it turns out if sweet potatoes are roasted, you get at least 14 to 15 new flavor molecules that are never created otherwise if you steam, you microwave, or you boil them. And I said, this makes perfect sense to me. Why not take full advantage of what you have, one simple vegetable, and you can transform it in so many different ways by just two things, steaming it in its own uh, liquid, and then, uh, you know, you roast it, so you get those smells. It, it really is both one of the creamiest, maybe the creamiest sweet potato that I've ever made myself, and then also the only sweet potato, I think, where 
I ate the whole thing and I felt like I didn't need anything else. Exactly. So the steaming is mostly for texture. Correct. And then the roasting is to bring out those flavor molecules. Yeah. So actually this, so I have a sweet potato pie in the book and it actually started out with that. And I wanted to research why, um, you know, sweet potatoes, that that smell, that vanilla smell kept like coming back at me. And so I went back to research papers, uh, to science uh, research that um, had looked at this in food technology. And there was this whole paper where they compared all the molecules. They had done these uh, spectroscopic analyses and literally compared all the molecules that came out and said these were the concentrations that came out. And I said, oh my gosh, like I don't really steam sweet potatoes. And I know why now I don't micro, I've never microwaved sweet potatoes. And I said, this is why I honestly just moved to uh, roasting them every time. And this makes sense to me now that someone has given me numbers. Because I, I usually just rely on numbers versus people telling me things. I always have to go and fact check. So that to me was solid evidence to say, okay, this is a method that I, I need to do more of in my kitchen. But I also can share this knowledge with other people so they can take advantage of it too. This is the Genius Recipe Tapes. We'll be right back. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beat in cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. So Nick, just like you did in season and just like you did in this particular recipe, the flavor equation is so full of flavor combinations that I've never seen before, but I immediately want to eat. As you were deciding on the recipes for this book, what was coming first for you, the science or the emotion? The tears, <laughs> the emotion, I guess, because I was crying so much. <laughs> This book, oh my God, it made me cry so much. It was very easy for me to write the science chapters for this cookbook. When it came to the recipes, I was struggling because I couldn't figure out how to build recipes to teach the principles of those taste chapters. Because in this book, all the recipes reside under the different tastes. And I need, I'm talking about how to, uh, how to experience all these different tastes from savory to saltiness to sweetness to bitter sour and then how do I showcase that to people in a recipe and it was such a struggle because I remember making a lot of like you make a big recipe list when you write a cookbook you know this too and then you go through it and then you start culling things that don't work and then you go through a second phase when you're actually testing and creating things and you say oh my god this sounds nice on paper but it's terrible then there were experiments also that I wanted people to see because one of the things I advocate for and I really want kids also to see is something that I love that cooking and science kind of go hand in hand it's basically the same thing just in a different um under different guise and so how do I do that and so one of the th one of the examples is the shishito padron peppers in the book which are roast uh, which are blistered and then I wanted to teach the concept of umami synergism where you have two different types of umami molecules that come together and then you experience greater umami in your mouth and 
you in the recipe talks about using soy sauce and then using bonito flakes. Both have different umami molecules when they come together. You have this explosion. So practically kind of teach that to people because that's important to me in a cookbook, especially it's something like this when I'm trying to talk about food science. I kind of need, I don't want to throw theory at people because theory is not that sexy for everyone, but actually teaching people to see how it's unfolding in their own hands in the kitchen is a much easier way to drive concepts home, which is why in science we have labs and then we have theory classes. But how did you marry all of the things that you learned in your science classes with this really key emotional aspect that you talk about, which is not really present in a lot of food science books? How did that factor in? I mean, was that always a part of what you wanted to talk about in this book or did it kind of come out through your research? When um, I started, got into the career of food writing, all my editors started to encourage me to write about my emotions related to food and in the head notes, in the essays. And I felt, you know what, I've been, this is such an important part of how we behave. It would be foolish for me not to kind of see what had been done in research. Turns out there is an not turns out, but rather I knew about this, that there's a lot of cross-modal research happening on flavor and how people behave and how all of that ties in. I said, you know what, this affects flavor and it, research has shown that it does influence even the taste we experience with different foods and it affects that decision-making process. So I felt it would be you know, kind of silly for me not to include all this. Well, and the part that I really connected to as well was where you were talking about negative experiences with food impacting your taste for them. So being forced to eat certain foods when you were a child, basically mm -hmm. you never really want to eat. I never went back. Yeah. yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you've seen in your research about that? So one of the things that happens with children, and it starts with babies, babies first experience their first taste molecules when they're in the womb inside the mother, because a lot of those molecules go through breast, uh, through their bloodstream. When they come out, then breast milk is the next mm -hmm. source for them to experience that. And uh, one of the most interesting things that I learned was salt receptors actually don't form or don't develop properly until uh, the child is born a couple of weeks after. Mm. And so the taste for salt actually comes much later in life. And so the mother is through is like the first kind of person that introduces the child to all these flavor molecules, so from sugars to savory. And what's really interesting, these are the molecules that actually provide us energy through life, you know, and so that's what you're kind of being primed towards. And then as the child grows up, you know, you're experiencing different things in your environment. Uh, part of it is culture. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are born in, like me, I was born in India. So my flavor profiles that immediately come to mind are those that are, in, you know, from what I've experienced as a kid in India. And then my mother comes from a Portuguese colony, so her food was much more European influence. So that plays a huge part in my cooking. And so, you know, I feel like all these influences we experience in life prime us to how we change as adults. Some of us don't like things. I don't like certain Indian vegetables because my parents forced me to eat them. And even now my mother was, oh, so now do you eat? And I said, no, I don't buy it. I don't bring it in my house because I'm traumatized by it. A lot of children, I remember talking to a spice store owner. He told me that when little kids come into their stores, they're so overwhelmed with the smell of spices that some of them start crying. And one of the reasons for that is when you're young, the number of you know, receptors that you have for taste and aroma are high. And then at a certain age, I think in the late teenhood, I might be wrong, but I think around late teenhood, they start to drop. And then as you get older, it keeps dropping. So you then start to appreciate things that maybe you wouldn't. So I feel as an adult now, I have a wider palate than I did as a child. Do you think you'll ever get to the point where the your most loathed vegetables will work for you? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I've always tried 
to like turnips. I don't like, to, I've never created a turnip recipe because I hate the sight and smell of turnips. Yeah, I don't see that happening anytime in my future. What was the situation in your childhood that like set up this relationship with turnips then? Like what, what the happened? Traumatizing <laughs> Yeah, well, how were they served and how, how were you forced to eat them? The, the trauma has, um, yeah, I'm free from my parents' clutches, so the trauma. <laughs> but one, I think one of the things were most disappointing is the way they cooked it. And then you would think it's some texture, but it's not. And so they would cook turnips smashed, breaded and everything and say it was delicious. And it never was. It stunk. It also was never a potato because as a kid, I really like cabbages and potatoes. And I used to go in thinking, oh, it's going to be like a nice smashed fried <laughs> potato, breaded or whatever. It was, ne- it was never that. It was always this turnip and this damn turnip. They would say, you have to eat it. And it was so, oh, so no, like it's not something that I plan to overcome and I have no desire also to climb that hill. Mm-hmm. We're done. Turnips. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's over. Turnips. It never began. <laughs> I had some similar experiences when I was a kid. Um, I didn't really eat salad until I was uh, in junior high because I had a couple very early experiences I think at preschool and then later at Girl Scout camp where they, you know, they, they served me a pile of like iceberg lettuce just covered in blue cheese or ranch dressing, like really strong flavored creamy dressing. And I was so distraught. I didn't want to eat it at all. And they made me take, you know, three brownie bites or, or whatever. And just, I remember the shame and the fear. <laughs> and then I, I didn't eat any salads with dressing until I was 12 or 13. And only then it was then I think cultural pressure the other direction that made me start to dip a toe in because I looked around and everyone else was eating salad. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that sometimes when parents force their kids to eat things, I think there are better ways to go about it. Because another thing that I, you know, didn't know, and I'm sure my parents still don't know, even if I've told them about this, but bitterness, bitterness is governed by genetics. And a lot of people just don't like bitter foods and you can't convince them otherwise. Sometimes, I mean, I hate saying genetics kind of sounds like a destiny thing, but not all of us will like something because culture, environment, and of course, genes. That's so interesting. How, what was the research on genes showing? Was it specific only to bitterness or were there other taste preferences? So there is a subset of the human population, which are called super, super tasters. And these people generally have a certain mutations in their DNA in genes that uh, make them sensitive to bitter food. So they've been discovered for coffee for, uh, you know, polyphenols and all these other chemicals. And the only bitter substances that from what I've learned that people really enjoy, even if they hate other bitter foods, are the things that are kind of addictive, like chocolate and coffee, because your brain says, oh, it's going to get this caffeine reward. And so you can compensate, you know, that kind of builds that up. I, I think it's very fascinating to see genetics play. or I mean, this is for me because I love the science of it all. Um, and a lot of people who do not like bitter foods move to sweeter things. So I've been told, this is much more qualitative, uh, that a lot of pastry chefs could be super tasters because they prefer sweet things. And a lot of them do not like bitter foods. Like I do not drink beer, mm-hmm. much to the vexation of all my friends. You know, going to when we used to go to bars, I never drank beer. because, And I would just say, it's just so bitter, I, I can't handle it. Um, and it turns out, I got myself tested and it turns out I have the situation 
where I just cannot handle bitter foods, but I prefer sweet things all the time. You are so much speaking to my own uh, heart about this because I studied this a lot in grad school too. I was very obsessed with what causes picky eating behavior. You being a super taster doesn't square with a lot of the things that I have read about super tasters because you do seek out strong flavors in other ways. What do you think about that? So one of the things is that I think it's also because of culture. Mm-hmm. I really think it's because of culture, because if I don't, if I didn't grow up in an Indian family or if I didn't grow up in India, I've always considered, oh, what is the other like situation? So one of the things I've kind of gone back to kind of see what kind of foods did my parents cook? One of the things I was very fortunate is that my parents came from two different backgrounds. So the food was always different. They never really tried to say, oh, today we're only going to eat North Indian food. Today we're only going to eat Goan food or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was just whatever we're going to cook, you're going to eat and call it a day. <laughs> Um, so like turnips showed up sometimes. And um, I think that's very important because that mental block of having a wall saying that you can only do this, it doesn't exist in my mind because my parents didn't build that wall and they didn't do it on purpose. Whatever they was cooked, you had to eat and call it a day. Uh, the other thing is that in Asian countries in general, and even in uh, you know Central and South America, you'll notice no one really pairs anything from the same ingredients. No one really does that. It's more of a Western concept. You see, you know, cool flavors always being put with cool. If you look at Malaysian food, you look at Indian food, you look at Mexican food, even African food for that matter. There's like a whole explosion happening in your mouth. Things that you would not consider pairing come together. No one's going in with this preconceived notion that it has to taste like the singular ingredients. That's another important thing. And I feel like sometimes when we write recipes, we say, oh, like ginger and cardamom, then everyone's expecting to taste ginger and cardamom in that recipe. If they don't taste it, they get upset. How about you walk in and you taste it with a mind saying that, oh, I'm going to taste something new. And it doesn't have to taste like any of the individual ingredients. And I, you see that repeatedly in recipes from, uh, you know, using Mexico as an example. Uh, when you have mole with ch- chicken mole, right? You don't really expect to go and taste bitter or sweet. You're expecting to taste something quite savory. And even though most of us know that cocoa goes into and chocolate sometimes goes into these recipes. And I think that's where, you know, having an open mind comes in. Like I keep saying open mind, but not trying to pair things by some flavor pairing rules. I actually don't like that concept at all. I think it's very restrictive. You have much more freedom when you're saying, okay, let me see if this works. Okay, it doesn't work. Try something new. I'm always hesitant to kind of, some of the scientists who believe in that probably hate me for saying this, but I, I just feel uncomfortable kind of, propagating something where it has such a heavily Western, one-sided view when the rest of the world is might be doing something else. And I think I want to see more of that, which is also one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I did not want to write a science cookbook based on what was already known or very Western-driven recipe. So even though there's a mayonnaise in the recipe, it comes from my lens. It's got strong Indian influences in it. Nick, this Thanksgiving and just this year in general is obviously so unprecedented and unlike anything we've seen before what what's your thanksgiving going to look like this year it's going to be very small <laughs> mm-hmm. uh just me and my husband which is kind of fine it'll be nice to kind of spend some one-on-one time and cook one meal and then eat it for a couple of days so i'm excited about that but i don't have to cook it's a strange thing for a cookbook author to say <laughs> i don't want to cook every day uh, but no i'm excited because i think uh one of the things that COVID has taught me and this pandemic has taught me is that I can, we've actually been doing a lot of like one-on-ones with the friends that live in different countries and even family. Um, And so it's actually been a really fun way to connect with them for a short period of time. And this is kind of nice. You have an exit strategy. (laughs) So 
you hang out, you have like all the fun stuff. And then as soon as the conversation starts to get a little awkward, okay, got to go to the next <laughs> car. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm so terrible for saying that. <laughs> what are you cooking this Thanksgiving? If you stumble on something genius, I would love to hear about it at genius at food52.com. Our show was put together by Coral Lee, Emily Hanhan, and me, Kristen McGlory. If you like the Genius Recipe Tapes, be sure to rate and review us. It really helps. See you next time.